today, and I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open up to the book of Luke, chapter 15. The book of Luke, chapter 15, and we're going to read three parables this morning. Three parables that you are likely familiar with if you've read your Bible very much. But if you're not familiar with them, we hope, we hope you'll gain some benefit from the reading of these today. Luke chapter 15, we'll begin reading verse 1 and read down to verse 24 of our scripture text today. It says this, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? When she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine." And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave it unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he was yet a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, on, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. I'll conclude our reading this morning, and we'll make reference to the last eight verses, perhaps by the end of the message today, if the Lord will help us to bring these things out. The title of our message this morning is, God Seeks, God Saves, God Rejoices. God Seeks, God Saves, God Rejoices. The more that I read the scriptures and even stories that I've read and heard for the majority of my life, I suppose as I was um, beginning in my ministry and even in my Christian life, I would often look at these scriptures from um, 
somewhat of a self-focused standpoint. What is this trying to teach me and how I can live and how I can change and how I can do these various things? And the scriptures are, are good for that. The Bible teaches us in the book of 2 Timothy that it's good for instruction, that we can learn how to apply those things in our lives and exercise the things God has made us stewards over correctly. Nonetheless, as I read the scriptures now, I suppose there's a slight difference when I read them or what I notice about them. I don't know if this is because um, I have children. I don't know if this is because of age. I don't know what it is. But when I read the scriptures now, I, I see the character of God more. Or what these parables, what these stories... What God's dealings with mankind say about who He is. And the more that I learn about who He is, the more I love Him. The more I experience in life of the sin of people and the failures of other people, and am able to contrast that with what the Bible tells us of who God is and what I experience of who God is, the more that I want to know Him and be around Him. And the less that I want of the things of this world. These three stories, if there's anything that you get from these three stories, I hope it tells you something about who God is. Because... These stories are so beautiful in depicting the goodness and the good character that our God has towards us. And I feel very humbled this morning that He is my God. Kind of a strange thing to say, but I'm just humbled that I have this great privilege to serve Him because of His greatness. And... This story, I think, or these three stories, what the scriptures are trying to indicate here, I I just pray, you pray for me this morning, that God will just help me to bring out some of these sacred things about who that God is. The story begins by Jesus getting approached by some people. These people, these sinners, or these tax collectors, These rejected people from the religious establishment came to Jesus and they were desirous to hear him. Now, if you notice, what the scripture doesn't tell us is Jesus did not push these people away. I don't think he felt awkward by them being around him as we find out all through the New Testament that when all groups of people would come around Jesus, despite perhaps our discomfort with certain people or certain groups of people, Jesus never indicates this discomfort with any group of people who ever came around him. These people came, and there were some onlookers. There were some religious people that were looking on to these sinners and tax collectors coming to Jesus, and they held in high judgment what these people were doing, And questioning why Jesus would allow these type of people to be around him. But the first thing that I want you to notice about the character of God is that he allowed anybody to come and be in his presence. That's a marvelous thing about God. Very often there is a natural inclination within the heart of people who are lost or people who are saved to try to act in a certain way to be worthy to go into the presence of God. That we have to live good for a few days, pray the right prayers, have a certain degree of emotions before we approach God. But I love the fact that what God desires is that His creation, those that were made after His image, would just come and be in His presence. He does not dispel those people. He welcomes those people to be in his presence. This morning, you may go through periods of your life where you have a hard time even looking up in prayer because things you've said, things you've done, attitudes that have pervaded your 
personality for days or weeks or months on end. And Satan will use that as a tool to keep people from God, to keep people from church. But what this is saying is that these sinners and tax collectors came to him and the only people who were in judgment of sinners coming to God were other people. God was not in judgment of that. Because what God knows is the best place for anybody to be, sinner or saint, unrighteous or righteous, is in the presence of God. These people come to him. And these onlookers are are looking at him. They're muttering. They're talking amongst themselves in a tone of judgment. And so Jesus addresses them specifically. And he gives three parables to indicate their attitude and how they ought to be rejoicing when they're not versus the attitude that God has that these sinners come to him. And so we'll talk about that here in a few minutes, but I want to point out some things about this parable that I believe are just wonderful truths about who God is. I want you to notice first, in all three of these parables, that all of them indicate that the person was seeking something. So we find in the very first one that a man was a shepherd. Well, if I were to ask you, what does a shepherd value? What would you say? Well, by just giving the title of a shepherd, it ought to indicate the natural value that he would have is in sheep. That is the object of his interest. A shepherd, like many different occupations, that was his life. It was his identity, being out on the pasture 24-7. He was on call to protect that which he was a steward over and that which made him a living, that which provided for his family. And so the, uh, the, the, uh, the object of his interest was a shepherd, or were sheep, and that's what he valued. This woman, she had an object of value, and it was these ten coins I think here it's indicating a day's wage. So you had 10 of them. She lost one of them. And then finally, I believe the last parable is this consummation of the the things taught in the previous two, but it just raises the stakes a little bit. Because then it raises it and says, there was a father. And if I asked you, what does a father value? Again, by just identifying someone as a father, you would naturally say his children. And this says his father had two sons. And so I want, want, want us to know first this morning is that God seeks those things that he values. Because every person in each of these parables is only seeking that which he finds valuable. Now, We can read through the scriptures, but I I want to give an analogy this morning. And I I saw, I don't know where I saw this at, but I did see somebody use this analogy before. But if I took money out of my wallet and I had a hundred dollar bill and I crumpled it up and I stepped on it and I got all dirty, would you still want it? Absolutely. It still has value, right? That regardless of what you do to it, it has inherent worth. I want you to know this morning that God values the souls of men. Regardless of anything, God values the souls of men. But what are things that cause us to devalue people? These people in the scripture were murmuring, were laughing, were mocking the fact that Jesus was willing to have these people come to him. So they obviously, when they looked on, they were using a different form of judgment. They saw something about these people that they determined was unworthy of God valuing them enough to give them his time and attention to speak to them. So very often, as this even indicates, the way they viewed them, they called them sinners. And so evil or wickedness is often something that we as as fallen creatures can look on one another and say, you know what, that is not worth my time, that is not worth God's time. But as we look through the word of God and we consider the brightness of God's character, what we find is that God values the human soul despite the wickedness of that person. One of my favorite scriptures, one of my favorite examples in all the Bible 
And every time I read it and every time I consider it, it just amazes me that God loves people this much. It's found in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 33. It's about this man named Manasseh. I want to read to you this morning for just a moment the wickedness of Manasseh. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 33, and I'm going to read it from a different version because I think it helps us to better understand it. Here's what it says. Speaking of Manasseh, who began to reign in Israel, here's what it says. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the repulsive acts of the pagan nations, whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had torn down, and he set up altars for the Baals, and made the ashram, and worshipped all the hosts of the heaven, speaking of, of the sky, and served them. He built pagan altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons, listen to this, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Behinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, and practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Oh, I love this story about Manasseh. Here Manasseh does all of these things. He's in Israel, and instead of worshiping the one true God who had manifested his greatness to the children of Israel by establishing them, preserving them, and protecting them amongst the other nations of the world, rather than worshiping him and following after the pattern of his father Hezekiah, who had reestablished true worship in Jerusalem, Manasseh tears all of those things down, builds in the temple of God these idols that could be worshiped by Israel, encourage other people to worship these things, and then to make matters worse, he took his innocent little children and sacrificed them to his idol gods. And you would think, oh, the goodness of, a, the goodness of God would necessitate that God just say, I can't, I can't be around that. I can't allow that. I'm just going to destroy him. And perhaps the attitude of of the hearts of men would come in and just destroy this wicked man. And yet the Bible teaches us that God still loved Manasseh. God still desired that Manasseh repent of his sins and come to him. How do I know that? Because it tells us later in the chapter this. Now the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. I'll tell you, I have a bad thing about my character, and I'll tell it to you this morning. If I try to warn something about something, if I try to encourage somebody to do something right that they're not doing, and they continue doing what I think is wrong, that either displeases God, that is just hurtful to their family, I hate to admit this about my character, but my natural response is, you'll get what's coming to you. Wait and see. You'll you'll see. You'll see that the instruction you were given was right. And you should have done it. And then, whenever they reap what they sow, the, the sinful spirit within me at times can feel a sense of gratification that they are reaping what they sowed. That's not the character of God. How do I know that? The book of Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 tells us, As the Lord liveth, saith the Lord, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and repent of their sins. The Lord, not only did Manasseh do all of these terrible things, but after he's done all these terrible things, God sought him. It said in verse 10, God spoke to him and to the people, but they did not listen. Now God is not at all added to whether Manasseh rejects him or accepts him. God does not need Manasseh's approval. God is in no bit feelings hurt like we often get when somebody rejects what we have to say. But notice here in the text that God did not give up on Manasseh. He continued to pursue him. 
And here's what it says in verse 11. So the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks. Or, In other words, here's what those people did, the Assyrians. They put hooks in their nose and in their cheeks and would hook chains to those and pull them a thousand miles east to Babylon. He allowed him to be tortured by other nations around him in order to humble Manasseh. The Bible teaches us that God is attentive to those who are of a humble heart. And so God, in loving Manasseh, brought him low and humbled him. And listen, friend, this morning, when God is seeking after your soul, when God is seeking after your heart, often it comes in a variety of ways whose end desire is to humble you before the eyes of God. It's unpleasant and it's painful. It may require both natural pain or sickness. It might cause emotional distress. It might allow relationships to be messed up in your life. But however it is, it's God's attempt to humble you, to put you in a place where your heart will finally stop depending on self and looking for the gratification of the world and and, and look to him for your salvation. Here, Manasseh is dragged all of that way. And he gets in prison, and his heart is being tortured. And finally, he looks to God. Manasseh is in heaven today. How do I know that? Well, it tells us here. When he was in distress, he sought the Lord as God. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his pleading and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. My dad used to always warn me. Be careful what you pray for because God might answer it. And he said that his dad used to pray this prayer for a wayfaring family member that he would come back to church and begin to honor the Lord with his life. And he experienced all these hardships in life. To my knowledge, to this day, he's still experiencing all these terrible heartaches in life. And his dad would, my grandfather would pray, Lord, do whatever it takes. To bring him back. And my dad said, one time he warned his dad, be careful what you pray for because what if it takes extreme thing to bring him back? My grandfather told him, I know exactly what I'm praying for. I want God to use whatever it takes to bring him back. Because dwelling being a tent, uh, being a, a doorman in the house of the Lord is better than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Amen. Or in other words, being in the lowliest position as a part of the people of God is better than dwelling in the most inner sanctum of those people who are wicked. Amen. Here, God did not allow wickedness to dispel him. You know, he also doesn't allow to dispel him from seeking after people. He does not allow people's deception to push him away. One thing I'm amazed about today is the variety of religion in the world today. It's so sad. It's so sad. How deceived, even if we're excluding secular deceit, and we're just talking about Christian religious deceit, It is mind-boggling how much deceit is out there. But do you know that as, as deceived as people are, God is still seeking those people. God is still, the Bible tells us, and we can find in the scriptures that the most prolific author of the New Testament is an example of this. A man who was religiously deceived in the highest regard within the Jewish teaching. There Paul was, a Pharisee of Pharisees, brag, had bragging rights over all other Jews, and he was rigorous in his defense of his way. And yet the Bible teaches us that God continuously sought after that man Paul. 
And God transformed that man because God loves the souls of men. And God, as, as, as strange as certain deception, as deep as people might be in it, God is not pushed away by those things. But when he sees a soul of a man or a woman whom he created in his image, who he designed to worship him in spirit and in truth, God will go to the end to diligently seek and find them. We find in the scripture, what did it tell us about the man who was seeking after his sheep? It says he left behind the 99 and he went out and he sought the one. What about the woman? She put those nine coins safely and then she went and she diligent, she lit a candle. I love that part. I love the descriptiveness that it gives us about what that woman did in order to seek and to find what she was looking for. Listen to this description right here. It says this in Luke chapter 15. Either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle Sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. You know that, that, that verse that says she lit a candle. You know what I think of? I think of Psalm 19. Brother Moran quoted it last week when we were at Mount Lebanon. The heavens declare the glories of God and the firmament that showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language wherein their voice is not heard. What is that saying? The psalmist is saying... When I was down in Belize on a mission trip here just a few weeks ago, I was out in indigenous people territory, no cities for hundreds of miles. And God lit his candle. You know what I mean? You ever been a place where God does that? Where God lights up the sky and you see the vastness of God's creation. And why do you think God did that? Why do you think God created all that? As a testimony, because every speech, every language, every people group through all time, there is a testimony to them that God is seeking after you and he is displaying his greatness and his magnificence to all of creation that we might look and see him and find him and seek after him. God putting that there is to lead us towards him and to testify to who he is. He lit a candle. She swept the house. Looked everywhere. I think, uh, how many times have I done that in my house? (laughs) Where we lost something. My kids said, I think we found it over there. And so what do we do? I mean, things that have not been cleaned in years. Suddenly, we get, and it is squeaky clean, but we couldn't find what we were looking for. You realize God does that for people. God loves people enough. I, 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 I believe more of our lives are due to, to divine providence than what we could possibly imagine. Things that just by happen chance, we see. Things that just by happen chance, we hear on the radio. Things that, these, these meetings that we happen to have that we weren't supposed to be a, bar, a part of. And at the last second, plans changed. And there we were at that place at that time. Now, those are coincidences from our perspective, but I believe God arranges much of our lives, much more of our lives. I think the difference is that we're not perceptive enough to realize it. But what if you woke up in the morning every day and said, God, help me to see what you have arranged for me to see today. Help me to perceive through the spiritual realm what my natural physical eyes are blind to. And I think what we would find is a God who lights a candle and sweeps all through the house, seeking after people to find them. God seeks people. And then God saves people. I'm glad that there is an end goal in God's seeking. You know, it feels like today that there is no end goal in God's seeking. And the reason is because we don't see a lot of people getting saved. And so sometimes there's this sense to which we portray this God who is seeking after people and calling people into himself, but that's all he's doing. That's not all he's doing. God is seeking after people, and then he is saving people. Just as this man went out with the intent to find the sheep, and he found it. 
Just like, you know, there's times where I remind myself that if I lose my keys at home or if I lose something valuable to me and I know they're somewhere in the house, I tell myself over and over, I know they have to be here. I know they're here. And what is stopping me from finding it is how diligent I'm willing to be in ascertaining what I'm looking for. God saves people. And here's what I'm most thankful for when God saves people. We're conscious of it. You know, I was thinking about this as I was thinking about, you know, this, this sheep when it was found. Its conditions were probably changed from the moment it was lost to the moment it was found. It's still an animal, though. But I'm still, it was still able to perceive when you're out there and you're hungry and you're cold and you're away from the flock, there is a noticeable difference from when the shepherd is carrying you back and putting you back amongst the fold. They're leading you to green pastures and still waters. There's a difference, a noticeable distinction between that. But you know, there's even a greater distinction when God saves a person. You know, this is what the world is missing today in true salvation. There is something that happens to a person when God saves us. You ever had somebody at your house that was grumpy, like a visitor, or depressed, or angry? What does it feel like in the home? Well, you can feel this this, this, this coldness, this unsettledness in your home, can't you? And it doesn't feel comfortable until when? Until they're out the door. And then they're out the door, and what do you sometimes say? Whew, man, I feel so much more relaxed, so much more comfortable. I feel so much better because this is gone, and in its place is something else. You know, the Bible teaches us that whenever we're lost that we have the spirit of Adam within us, that we have a fallen, broken, sinful spirit that dwells within us and governs us. And the moment that God saves us, he removes that, and in its place, he puts the infinite power and spirit of God within us. And the, 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 the thing that we are most aware of at the moment God saves us are the most prominent parts of his character. What are the most prominent parts of his character? Well, the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness, patience. All of those fruits of the Spirit are the things that begin to take its presence. It's also the opposite is true. When somebody is in our home and they're a joyful person and they're cheerful and they're, they're good at counseling you and helping you and they just brighten your day and they bring joy to you, you can tell a difference when they're in your home versus when somebody else who's not like that is in your home. But listen to me, God comes and he dwells with in our heart and we're conscious immediately when it happens because he removes that sinful spirit and he puts this spirit of God within us and bubbling over is the essence of God's character. We can discern it. You know, I, I find that missing today in religion, don't you? You ask somebody, when, have you, when were you saved? How did you know it? Well, I repeated that. Well, how did you know you were saved? Well, I said this and I did this. No, but was there, did the Spirit of God, as Romans 8, 16 tell us, bear witness with your spirit that you are the children of God? God's Spirit bears witness with us, and there is a notice to that. This morning, I'm thankful that God seeks us, and then God saves us. And when he does, we know it. I'm glad that he renews that spirit within me sometimes. He doesn't resave me, but he reacquaints me with the nearness of his presence. Sometimes I I feel the sorrow of Christ. Do you? As a Christian? The Bible teaches us in Isaiah 53 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why? Because he saw the sins of the people and the inevitable... uh, 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 consequence that would come from sin and it grieved him he looked over Jerusalem and he felt and he saw the same thing and if you're a child of God and you're doing the work of God what you'll find is that at times the spirit of God will groan within you with sorrow for the state of other people and just how little you can do about it but I'm further thankful that God can also renew in us a sense of joy I felt that this week it just Thanksgiving for God's goodness, just in the most simple things, God's goodness. I I feel good in my body. I'm healthy. 
And I'm so grateful for God's goodness. And it wasn't, I'm just thankful because now I can go live life the way I want to. But there was this this beaming from my spirit that that was a particular blessing that God gave me and allows me to feel joy in having that. God's spirit refreshed me with joy. Peace. And that's what I pray for this family I was telling you about, about to lose a son. Lord, grant them the peace that only you can bring. Renew in them that aspect of your character, which is peacefulness in the midst of the storm. God seeks. God says, it's not really the intent of either of these parables. Any of these parables, that's not the point. Those are qualities we can pick out. But what God is trying to get at is when these men were looking at the sinners and the multitude coming from G- to Jesus, listening to him, they were scoffing at them. And God was saying, okay, when those people come to me, you scoff. But when those people come to me, God rejoices. And he was trying to point out to them the difference between how God acts when people come to him and the way that people so often act when sinners come to him. So if you'll notice in the story, it tells the story to get to the main point, which is the rejoicing. And the emphasis, if you go back and read it, on all three stories is always in the rejoicing of the person who found what was lost. Listen to this, Luke 15, 5. It says this, he went out, he found it, he says, and when he had found it, he lay it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So it told the story in one verse. Now listen to what it talks about the rejoicing. That's verse 5, verse 6. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse, the third verse he talks about, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. You see, the Bible tells us that when God sends people out, and now he does it through his church, that he sends us out to be vehicles and vessels whereby he reaches out to the world. And then when by God's grace, a person repents of their sin and he saves them, the Bible says that even in heaven, there is great rejoicing. This man, when he found his sheep, was not satisfied just to have joy in and of himself, but joy is contagious and it grows when you spread. And so he went from person to person to all of his neighbors who no doubt he had gone to and said, hey, have you seen my sheep? I've got 99. I'm missing one. And he went back and they all rejoiced. If we have our priorities straight, if we're thinking clearly, if the spiritual things of God are more important than the natural things, any time we hear of a person having been sought out by God, found of him, and brought in back into God's fold, it ought to cause us more joy than any natural event that we can be a part of. Because that person, their soul is saved forever. If you could quantify what takes place at the moment of that wonderful transaction when God saves a soul, it's infinity to use the popular term and beyond. You cannot, you cannot overstate what happens at that moment. Here that man rejoices. The woman, she seeks diligently. She finally finds that wage, that one coin that she was looking for. And what does she do? She goes and she gets her neighbors and she tells all of them. And then so as to enumerate even more what he has to say. He gives us this last parable that I think turns at the human heart more than the two previous stories because I think all of us can imagine this relationship being of such great consequence that when a father's, when a son has gone out and he has forsaken his family and some people perhaps here have even experienced that. I know my family has gone through that where a family member went off and they wouldn't have any contact with somebody and for years your mind wonders and churns what are they doing and where are they at and what's their welfare and oh to long to be a part of their life here this father gave to his presumptuous son his arrogant son his proud son his son that was selfish that considered nothing with the goodness that his father had provided went out on his own accord seeking his own welfare notice at no point during the parable do we learn that the father's attitude was well fine you go learn your lesson 
He doesn't have that kind of resentful attitude, does he? No. We find a much different character in this father than what is natural to the human flesh. This boy goes out, and while things are good, he lives it up. He's doing all number of things that would bring him happiness. And at the same moment that he has brought all this happiness, it is the absolute distress of everyone in his family. Have you been there? Have you been on a Friday night at home wondering what your children were doing? Praying for your grandchildren who you know were not at the right places doing the right things, but there was nothing you could do about it. Here, this boy went out, and while things were good, he enjoyed himself. And then things took a turn for the worst. Everybody hit hard times, but especially this boy. I think pride prevented him from going back. It just seems most natural, right? There's something masculine about going out on your own. I don't need, I don't need the support of my family. I can do it myself. And then bad times hit, and that, 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 that wall of pride comes up, and he says, no, I can't go back now. I arrogantly walked out of here. I got to stand on my own. And that pride was so deep. Look how far into the ground that ran him. So bad that he would have eaten pig's food if he could stomach it, but he couldn't. Finally, I love what it says. He came to himself. How many times have you heard preachers talk about that? hundred? thousand? Feels like? Why? Because it's such a natural human thing for the humble heart. For the humble heart. I'm afraid that the more, let me say this. You know about our our culture, what I'm not concerned about is the wickedness. That does not concern me at all. Why? Because wickedness in cultures ebb and flow. You know what really concerns me about our culture more than the wickedness? The hard-heartedness. That's the concern. Because one of the good things about wickedness that we can read about in the book of Judges is that it's cyclical if you have a humble heart. You go out and you live, you, you, you rebel, you live in prosperity, hard times come, what does the humble heart do? Return back to God. And through the book of Judges, we see this cycle over and over because those generations of Israel were humble-hearted enough to allow the hard times to take them back to God. You know what's really concerning is when a person gets in a state of wickedness, that wickedness leads to despair and sin and awfulness and punishment and God's judgment. And then, rather than coming back, like Pharaoh of of, of the time of, of Moses, they harden themselves, they clench their teeth, and they say, no matter what, I'm not going back. I would rather be destroyed for all of eternity. I would rather be tortured for all of eternity than admit the error of my way. What concerns me about today amongst my generation and the generation coming up is it's not the sin. Because as Manasseh portrays, as all these scriptures in the Bible portray, there's hope for wickedness. There is no hope for hard-heartedness. If a person hardens their heart against God and says, no matter what, I don't want you. I don't want anything you have to offer. I know you have sought me. I know you're showing your loving kindness to me. But I want no part of it. You want to pray for your children and grandchildren that are out like this man, this prodigal? Pray that. Because in softening their heart, just like this boy, he came to himself. I think God relishes those moments when people come to themselves. I think God rejoices in those moments where people The eyes of their heart are illuminated. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that he lightens every man or enlightens every man that comes into the world. And I think that's what he's talking about. He reveals himself and reveals his truth to everyone that comes into the world. But how receptive are you when the enlightenment comes? This boy was in the pigsty, finally came to himself. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come back and plead with God for forgiveness and help. Oh, it concerns me today. Younger generation, don't ever be too proud 
to humble yourselves as low as you can possibly go to the person or people you have wronged. Wrong is wrong. Sin is sin. And when it needs to be repented of, don't allow yourself to say, you know what, I'll do it to this person or that person or I'll go this far. No, be willing to do whatever is required to make things right. This boy does. He goes back to his father. And what do we learn about his father? Don't you love this? Isn't this such a wonderful truth that God wants us to know about him, himself? The boy was a long way off. What I love about this is that he recognized him. I've had people tell me before they can recognize me by the way I walk. I have a certain gait, you know, a certain way that I walk. And I guess to people who know me really well, I said, you know, you were walking. I knew who you were because of the way you walk. Or perhaps the way you carry your shoulders, your stature. I love that the father recognized his son afar off. You know, to recognize someone amongst a crowd, you've got to be looking for them. You see a hundred people walking towards you, you're not, you might, somebody who knows you might pass right by your face, walk right by because you're not looking for them. His father was looking for him. What did he do? You know, this is a good thing for parents to remember when their kid comes back from doing wrong. Did he lecture him? Did he say, told you so? None of that. But I love, I love how it reads here. The father, the son comes back. Look at verse 21. It says this, and the son said unto him. So, so look at this story. Look at this picture. He's looking for him afar off. He sees him. His father runs to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Can you see all the emotion, all the pent-up worry of this father towards this son? And the son begins to just eject out of him this apology to his dad. I believe his dad interrupts him. That's what I think is happening here. Oh, they're both weeping. And here's what he says. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now here's why I think he, re- he, he interrupts him is because previously in his mind's eye he had thought, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've made all these mistakes. Please allow me to be your hired servant and I'll work for you and then you can give me the food just like your hired servants. But he gets to the beginning of his plea and he says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. And he's about to continue what he had rehearsed and his father just out of pure love for the value that his son had and how much rejoicing he had in him coming back says this, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf, let us eat and drink and be merry for my son which was dead is alive again. He could not contain the joy that his son had come back and was now safe amongst the fold. Listen friends today, God seeks, God saves and God rejoices when people come to him. It said this, there's, there's joy in the presence of the angels. Who is in the presence of the angels? There's only two entities that I know of, saved people and who? God himself. I believe God rejoices when people are saved. Why? What does he know? Oh, one day he's gonna, he, he went away to prepare a place for them. And now where he's went and prepared it, he's going to bring them back to himself in like manner that he went away. I believe, and I think scriptures indicate, and I won't go into it this morning, I believe people in heaven rejoice when people get saved. 
I do. I think people in heaven rejoice. I think we have this mystical sense that, you know, once they're in heaven, they're completely naive to things going on down here. Don't you think it would magnify the joys of heaven to know that things being done down here and giving glory to God that are of faith, that are going to have eternal consequences? Don't you think it would only magnify the joys of heaven for God to notify those already in heaven of the victories that are taking place in this warfare on earth? I think so. Whenever I was, I'm going to close with this. I got saved October 6, 1998. We were driving home from church. I told you before that I was, I was closest to my paternal grandfather. He died in uh, see, March of that year. He was the last one that I can remember ever talking to me about my soul. He said to me before he died, it was the last time I was going to see him. He said, Bradley, you're probably not going to see me again at least down here. But I've heard you've been praying at church and seeking after the Lord. And if you get saved, you'll see me again. And so keep seeking the Lord. Those are the last things my grandfather ever told me. That I can remember at least. We're driving home from church the day I got saved. And I was kind of kicking myself. Man, I wish I could tell him, you know. Like a person who had this tremendous impact on me. I don't remember who it was. I believe it was my mom that said, Brad, I think he already knows. That's an emotional tearjerker, possibly. But I think it's also truth. I think there's rejoicing in heaven. In God and his people. When he saves and secures a soul from the clutches of Satan. This morning, we serve a great God. A wonderful God who is always good. This boy forsook his family. And what did he get in return? But unconditional love. That's how God is. That's how I want to be. If you're lost, if you're wayfaring, if you have gone out and done things so beyond your parents' imagination that it would make your mother just, she could not stand to hear it. The things you have participated in and involved yourselves in, the deceit, all of those things, I want you to know that God is seeking to save you and will rejoice when he does. This morning, Sister Ashley, if you get for us a song, I'd like to give you an opportunity to seek after the Lord today. If you've never been saved by God's grace... God wants to save you and rejoice over your soul. If you feel like this young boy, if you feel God draw, if you're coming to yourself, there's an awareness that God's Holy Spirit is illuminating your mind and revealing your need for Him. Do what these people, seek after God until you find Him. That's our message this morning.